Well, good morning, church. All right, and uh, thank you all for being here. Those of you that are here in person, and I also want to thank you to people that are watching the live stream at home. We appreciate you guys uh, uh, joining us uh, through the means of technology, but I do appreciate you guys being here in person. Um, so go ahead, open up to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chap- chapter 3. This morning we are going to be talking about God's transforming grace. God's transforming grace. You see, we talk a lot about grace uh, because the Bible talks a lot about God's grace. And to really, if you're going to really understand or at least start to understand what Christianity is all about, we have to at least be starting the journey of understanding God's grace. And some have defined God's grace as his unmerited or his undeserved favor which I think is a fine definition, but it might be a little lacking if you don't also understand two aspects of his grace, both his forgiving grace and his transforming grace. You see, many times the aspect of God's grace that we talk about is his forgiving grace. The fact that that in his grace he has offered us forgiveness through uh, forgiveness from our sins through the substitutionary life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And praise God for that. Like, we should be talking about that. We should be teaching about his forgiving grace. That is a beautiful truth and something that we need to celebrate every day. But God also calls us to grow in grace. And God also calls us to be transformed by grace. And therefore, in the passage that we come to in Colossians, as we're just going kind of verse by verse through Colossians, we come to a passage that is going to have us lean into this sometimes ignored aspect of God's grace, his transforming grace, his transforming grace. Yes, God in his grace forgives us, but he also in his grace transforms us. Now, some of you might hear these words this morning, and you might start to get a little concerned because you think that I'm talking about working for your salvation or earning your right standing before God, because you're going to hear me talk a lot about things that we should do and things that we shouldn't do, because that's what the passage in Colossians is going to talk about. But trust me, that is, that is not what I'm saying, okay? Um, Uh, Remember what we talked about last week, that what we should do is always driven by what God has already done. Okay, And Paul, in this letter to the Colossians, for the first two chapters, he's been emphasizing what God has already done. He has been emphasizing the supremacy of Christ and the sufficiency of Christ, right? What God has done. And now he pivots in this letter and is saying, therefore, in light of what God has done, in light of God's forgiveness, this is now what you are to do. Now, some of you, sometimes we read through passages in the Bible very quickly that have to do with human effort or human responsibility because you get to passages like this and you think, well, hey, I don't I don't want to be legalistic about it. Right. I I mean, I, I mean, come on, like I'm saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Therefore, any talk of like adding to the forgiving grace of God causes some of us to feel a little squeamish and to shy away from it because we're worried that it's going to diminish the message of the gospel. And church, this should not be so. This should not be so. And I came across uh, uh, this was years ago. I came across a helpful quote by uh, Dallas Willard 
who said something that I think is very helpful in clarifying uh, this concern that we have about not wanting to add anything to the gospel or lead people to trying to earn their salvation. And what he said, he said, grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning. Okay, grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning, okay? Because Paul's going to get ready here. He's about ready to tell us some things that need to be put to death in our lives. He's about to tell us some things that need to be killed, that need to be stripped out of our lives. And let me tell you, church, this is going to take some effort on your part to obey what God is going to call you to this morning. And that might make some of us a little uncomfortable, But listen, grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning. And so we don't do anything this morning. I'm not calling you to do anything this morning that is an attempt to earn your salvation or to earn God's love or to earn God's forgiveness. That's not what we're talking about. We are not going to do these things in order to earn God's grace. But instead, because of his grace... Right, Because of the grace we have received from God, we know, yes, that we are forgiven, but we also now know that we are being transformed. And that is going to require a grace-driven effort, as many have, have, I think, rightly called it. It's a grace-driven effort. I think maybe D.A. Carson was the first one to coin that phrase, but that, I think that's, that, that properly describes the effort that we uh, uh, play in our transformation. It is a grace-driven effort. And it is only with a grace-driven effort that we can joyfully and successfully obey what he's going to call us to in this passage. So let me set set you up where we're at right now. Uh, Last week, we covered the first four verses of Colossians 3, which were all about us setting our minds or seeking the things that are above, which we learned that that doesn't mean that we are seeking something far off in a galaxy far, far away, but instead those are seeking the things of the kingdom of God. All right, And we learned that to seek the kingdom of God is essentially to pursue the king, to pursue King Jesus, and to pursue his ways. Okay, And so that's what we were setting our mind on last week. And now Paul is going to get into what some of the ways of the kingdom are. Okay, this week we're going to cover what he tells us the kingdom's not about. And next week we're going to talk about what the kingdom is about and the ways of the kingdom. Okay, so think about this as like a packing list for the rest of your life with King Jesus. Okay, don't bring these things, but bring these. Okay, this week is all about what we're not bringing on our in in our eternity with King Jesus. All right, these are the things we need to put off and to strip off and to kill. And next week we'll cover then what we are to bring and what are the ways of our king and his kingdom. And so I'm going to read uh, verses 5 through 11 for us. And why don't you guys go ahead and stand with me as I read God's word. Uh, Out of respect for God's word, why don't you guys go ahead and stand and listen to these words from Colossians 3 verses 5 through 11. And before I read, let, let me pray. Father, this is your word and these are your people. And Lord, we come before you today hungering and thirsting for more of you. And Lord, we ask that you would satisfy us, Lord, with your truth, that it would bear fruit in our lives. God, we ask that you would bring about conviction over a sin that you are going to expose in our hearts. And Lord, we, we ask that that would not lead us to feel any feelings of shame or condemnation, but that we would quickly run to the cross. 
and we would trust in the saving work that Christ has provided for us. So Lord, we ask that you would make much of yourself. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Colossians 3, verse 5. He writes, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In, the, in these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Amen. You may be seated. All right, Paul here goes into a list of what needs to be transformed by the grace of God in our lives. And I want you to first notice just the violent phrasing that Paul uses in telling us in how to deal with this sin. Okay? He says, put it to death. Kill it. All right, this should all of a sudden make the conversation we are about to have like, like be a little bit more serious, right? To carry a little bit more weight, okay? This should be a little, this should make things a little bit more sobering to us, just the seriousness of what we're about to talk about, okay? He's not going into a list of, of cute little pet sins that we can allow to hang around in our life that aren't going to harm anyone, no, God says, put these things to death. He says, put them to death. All right, who's, who's gone uh, paintballing in here? Who, who's, who's been paintballing? Yeah, all right. Paintballing, it's, it's pretty fun, right? I mean, when you get hit by a, paint, a paintball, it, it stings a little bit, all right? There's a little sting to it. Yeah, it's probably going to leave some, some welts on you for a couple of days. But in general, I mean, it, it's not so painful that it's going to keep you from wanting to do it. And it's not going to really cause too much harm to you as long as you've got your eyes protected and things like that. But now let's say you're getting ready to pay, play paintball, maybe some capture the flag. You've got two teams split up. And let's say now you substitute the paintballs out with real bullets. <laughs> and let's say you take the paintball guns away and you, you substitute uh, some real guns. That would add a bit of seriousness to your game of capture the flag, right? I mean, all of a sudden this has gone from a game to now war, Okay. And what Paul is doing in verse 5, he's saying, hey, this sin, like this, these lists of sins that I'm about to get into, these are not paintballs that are just fun and harmless to play around with. This is live ammo. Okay, these are real bullets. These will utterly destroy your life unless you put them to death. Because listen, God's forgiving grace does say that we are dead to sin. All right, God's forgiving grace says we are dead to sin, but his transforming grace reminds us that sin is not yet dead in us. And therefore, we have to kill it. We have to kill it. 
well, what do we have to kill? All right, and let's, let's go through these lists. I'm going to go uh, fairly quickly through these lists, but it would, it would help if you had the uh, uh, Colossians open in front of you. And I trust that as the Spirit maybe convicts you of one or two of these things, or maybe all of them, uh, I, I trust that as you feel the conviction from the Spirit, that these would be things that later on this week you would reflect on more, that you would pray on more, that you would study more. But we're going to go through the list very quickly. And there's a couple sets of lists here. And they each kind of fall under the theme of what he starts with first, okay? And so the first list starts with sexual immorality, all right? And all the sins that follow are kind of under that sexual immorality theme. And the second list starts with anger. And the ones that follow are all following this anger theme. Well, he first mentions sexual immorality, All right, so let's look at that, sexual immorality. This word is the word pornea, from which we get our English word pornography, which we know that the addiction to pornography is rampant and widespread, uh, both outside the church and inside the church, and with men, women, and children. And I can remember as a young boy, I was at a friend's house and we were out playing in the back uh, woods and there was a path that went to like a park. And I remember walking down the path and this was the first time and it's kind of burned in my mind that I saw there was a magazine off on the edge of the path that we stumbled upon that had sexually explicit images on it. And those images were were burned into my mind, and that was the beginning of a lifelong struggle to keep my eyes and to keep my thought life pure. And I eventually felt so much conviction uh, about it that I did. I confessed it to, to the Lord. I confessed it to my parents, and I asked for their forgiveness. But for years, my mind would want to go down that, that path. And parents, our kids have access to those paths every time they get on a device. Are we helping them in their purity, or are we just hoping that they figure it out? I think probably most of you fall into one of those two camps. You're either helping your kids with their purity, or you're just kind of hoping that it's all going to turn out okay. And what you're going to get in your email today at noon, I scheduled it to get sent out at noon, is going to be a list of resources that I'm going to mention today in this sermon. And one of those that is going to get emailed to you is an article by Tim Challies, who's a uh, Christian blogger that many of you are familiar with. And he wrote an article called The Porn-Free Family. And so if you don't know where to start and how to protect your home, both for yourself and your kids, he kind of goes through a step-by-step process and how to implement some filtering and blocking and accountability and protections in your home. And he also kind of implements some ways to help you start the conversation with people that are living in your home, whether your kids or your spouse. And so I'd encourage you, if you don't know where to start or if you don't have a plan, that would be a great place to start. Now listen, if you are currently looking at pornography, and I say this because I love you, but you need to confess that first to God. If you're married, you need to then go confess that to your spouse. 
And then you need to find a trusted brother or sister, and you need to confess that to them, someone who can walk with you and alongside you and help you put that to death in your life. Listen, it's not just a pet sin that's not harming anyone. It is killing your marriage. It is making you miserable. It's making you an unproductive and ineffective Christian. It's darkening your understanding of God. It's hardening your heart towards Him. It's keeping you from experiencing the joy and satisfaction that are offered to you in Christ. But listen, this word sexual immorality, it's more than just pornography, okay? It's referring to any sexual act that is outside the covenant marriage of a man and a woman. Now listen, sex is a good thing. God created sex. It was his idea. He knows how it works best. You do not. And so if you have been so arrogant to think that you know better than God and how to obtain sexual fulfillment, okay, you need to confess and repent that to God and to your spouse and to a trusted brother or sister, and you have to do it today, okay? You have to start killing it now. And the list then goes on, okay? Impurity, the next word, impurity, which he's likely still implying some sexual impurity here, whether it be physical or your thought life. He goes on with passion and evil desire, okay? This is getting at the idea of this kind of lust and self-gratification, which, which when we lust, right, aren't we being so selfish? It's such a selfish thing to do as you're objectifying another image bearer of God and using them for your selfish and evil desires. And then Paul finishes this first list with covetousness, which Paul is probably referring, again, to a, a sexual greed and coveting, but he could also be referring to any sort of covetousness. I mean, we see that throughout the Bible as well. And he calls it idolatry. He calls it idolatry because aren't all these sexual sins ultimately us not trusting and worshiping Creator God, but instead we turn to creation to satisfy us and we worship creation rather than Creator, and that is idolatry. Paul then in verse 7, he allows us to catch our breath for a moment from all the conviction kidney punches we are getting, and he, he now goes into another list. Okay? And these all fall under the theme of anger. And listen, these are all just as deadly as the previous list. These are all just as harmful to you as the previous list. And it all starts with this word anger. All right, now this, this first word anger is not necessarily like the, the violent erupting of anger, but it's more of like a brooding anger like a simmering anger underneath the surface that's boiling up. It comes out, right, sometimes it just leaks out a little bit with some passive-aggressive type behavior. And many of you, like other people wouldn't even know that you're an angry person, but you've just got some things under the surface that are just kind of brooding anger in you. He then goes on to the word wrath. With wrath, this is more kind of the angry outburst or this violent anger that we see. Some of your anger has gotten so out of control that you're wrathful, that you erupt, that you yell and go crazy on people. 
The next word, malice, right? This is, uh, malice is a desire to harm someone, right? Some of your anger has got so out of control, now you like have a desire to harm them. Anger then comes out sometimes as slander. Slander is abusive speech that is used in a way to harm another person. You see this happen, honestly, often in the church. And it is not the way of our king. Now, this doesn't mean that we don't, don't at times have to speak the truth in love to one another. Okay, we do. And sometimes that hurts, right? Sometimes speaking the truth in love, it is painful, all right? But we ultimately do it for the benefit of the other person, right? For their good. Slander says, hey, I'm going to use my words, whether they're truths or lies, but I'm going to use my words in a way to try to harm this person or hurt their reputation, And it can be done either to their face or behind their back, which is often how we usually slander someone behind their back. He goes on then with obscene talk. Now this just this isn't just referring to curse words or profanity, okay? But it, it could include them. Um, curse words or profanity are really kind of cultural and time dependent, as well as kind of language dependent that is constantly changing. Uh, and so I don't have like a master list of God's like no no words that you cannot say. All right, uh, I don't think that is necessarily even helpful. But this obscene this obscene talk that he's referencing here. It is speech that is not helpful. All right? Speech that is, it's just not helpful. And certainly profanity can be a part of that, but it's bigger than that. It's any speech that is not helpful. Think of your social media feed, okay? It is obscene talk. It's just not helpful. And my main concern when I hear a, a Christian cursing, all right, my main concern is not just the, that they said a certain word, But typically, it's a sign of some simmering anger underneath that's just brewing. And Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Paul then goes on to say, and he says, do not lie to one another. Right? This is not the way of our king. This is not the way of the kingdom of God. We are truth tellers. We do not lie. All right, kids, I, I, I know we've got all the kids in here, right? We don't have a nursery or preschool. Kids, I need your attention here, okay? All right, this is why your parents can get so maybe upset or concerned when you lie to them. All right, this is not the way of the kingdom. This is not the way of Jesus, okay? So when you do something wrong, right, and we ask what has happened, we would much rather you confess what you did wrong, ask for forgiveness, and move on, but tell the truth. We do not lie to one another. Followers of Jesus do not lie to one another, even when it means maybe it would not be advantageous to us in the moment to tell the truth. We don't lie to one another. We don't lie about the sexual sins that we are putting to death. We don't lie about the anger that is in our heart that we are putting to death. And listen, right now in this season that we're in, where we've got half of our church here, half of our church at home, as we see kind of this whole COVID-19 pandemic play out, this is what has happened, okay? During the pandemic, we have seen a huge spike in both sexual sin, 
All right, as people are home more, they're isolated more, they're looking at pornography more. We've also seen a huge spike in anger because whatever network or political party you align with or watch, right now you are being provoked to feel anger towards the other side. And these are to be put to death. Put to death this sexual immorality. Put to death this anger. And then Paul goes on to say in verse 11, he's essentially saying, put to death any sort of man-made division amongst you. Right? Look at, look at verse 11. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. Now listen, we, we are to rightly judge and divide the ways of the kingdom of God and the ways of the kingdom of man, okay? We are to be able to discern and call out what is good and what is evil. But we aren't to divide over our ethnicity or our socioeconomic status, Okay, in Christ, all racial, cultural, and social barriers are brought down because his kingdom people are one in Christ, regardless of the color of their skin, regardless of the number in their bank account, regardless of which side of the railroad tracks they live on, and regardless of which political aisle they sit on. And then this phrase that he says in verse 11, he says, Christ is all and in all. Okay, now listen, this isn't like a pantheistic statement like Christ is in this podium and Christ is in this microphone. That's not what he's saying, okay? He's essentially saying that Christ is all that matters, that Christ is everything. Any sort of division that is not required by him is an unhealthy division. We do not need to divide, well, excuse me, we do need to divide good and evil, the ways of the kingdom of God versus the ways of the kingdom of man, but we are not to come up with our own man-made divisions. And so if I could summarize kind of what we are to put to death, here we are being commanded to put to death sexual immorality, we're being commanded to put to death anger, and we're being commanded to put to death man-made division. But I mean, come on, is it really, is it really that important to do these things? <laughs> I mean, what's the big deal? Come on, lo loosen up, guys. What's the big deal? Look at verse 6, Colossians 3, verse 6. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. God's active wrath is coming to be poured out on sin. And listen, his passive wrath is already here as he turns people over to their sin. Okay? When we think about God's wrath, we usually kind of think the lightning bolt and uh, kind of the fire and God's wrath at the end. But what God's wrath often looks like is what Romans 1 talks about, where God is giving people over to their sinful desires. And he's giving them over to essentially self-destruct. And listen, I know it's not always fun to think about God's wrath. I know it's, it's definitely, it's not a popular thing to, to preach about. It's not, if we weren't preaching verse by verse through the Bible, I probably, it wouldn't be on the top of my list to like, hey, let's do some preaching on God's wrath. But it's, but it's here. But listen, really, God's wrath, it is an expression of his goodness. 
would God really be good if he turned a blind eye to sin? Would God really be good if he didn't care about the horrific atrocities in the world? Would God really be good if if justice wasn't carried out? And so Paul's saying, hey, he's saying these are this is serious. Okay, this is this is serious. This even this sermon, right? This this should be even a bit more serious than sometimes some sermons are. Like these sins are serious, and these are so serious that when he wrote to the Romans in Romans eight thirteen, we'll have it on the screen. Paul wrote, "For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live." Right? These are, these are real bullets, right? This is live ammo. These are life and death decisions happening in your heart. When people come to see me at the hospital, right? I work a couple days at the hospital. When people come to see me at the hospital, for the most part, I'm usually managing kind of some chronic health problems, right? We're kind of checking some labs, tinkering with their medication. You know, we're just kind of chronically managing some things. But sometimes someone comes to the hospital and they have something that if not treated that day, it could kill them. All right. And so after I see them, you know, I kind of calmly go get the wheelchair and call the ER and we just start kind of getting them moving to the hospital. And some people are kind of like, think I'm overreacting. They kind of blow it off. Like, just just calm down. It's not that big of a deal. And what they don't understand is that they have a dangerous heart arrhythmia that they were even unaware of that they were in. Or they maybe have an infection in their bloodstream that they had no idea was there. Or they had a cancer that has been silently growing and killing them. They had no idea it was there. And I'm like, no, we have to go now. You are getting treated today, right now. And Paul is saying the same thing about sin. He's saying, right from Romans 8, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Colossians 3, 6, right? On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Okay, if these are in your heart, you need an ER right now. These are killing you now. And if you don't see that these are real bullets and not paintballs, I pray that someday you will. But listen, if you never see how dangerous and harmful they are, like, like if you live your whole life and you never see how serious this sin is and how harmful it is to you, I would honestly question whether or not you are a true believer if that never happens in your life. Citizens of the kingdom at some point in their life see the ways that are in them that are not of the kingdom and they put them to death. I mean, could you imagine what could happen if Christians, if the church in America, can you imagine what would happen if we took sin as seriously as we've taken COVID 19? And I'm not saying that we shouldn't take COVID-19 seriously, okay? I'm just saying, can you imagine what would happen if we actually saw these things as being just as life-threatening and harmful to us as a virus? Well, how do we put these things to death? 
how do we experience the transforming grace of God in our lives? And I do want to get really practical here, okay? I want to uh, try to be even more practical and applicable than I sometimes am. And so I'm going to share a little bit from a book called The Mortification of Sin by the Puritan John Owen, who wrote this back in the 1600s. And John Owen is a really difficult Puritan to read, uh, but therefore I have emailed to you an outline version that another pastor put together of that book that just kind of hits the highlights, as well as I've emailed you a version, an abridged version, with some modern English updates that would be easier for you to read. Uh, but I'm going to hit the highlights. If, and if you're like, Psh, like, if you really want to go like old school Puritan 1600 John Owen, I mean, go for it. Uh, but, but it's difficult. All right, the, the word mortification, and it's the book that, that the famous quote comes from, be killing sin or it will be killing you, okay? Many of you have probably heard that quote. Now, the word mortification, it comes from the Latin words uh, for death and to do, okay? And so it literally means to make dead, all right, that's what to mortify, or to, you know, it means to make dead. All right, it's for those of you who are hunters in here, okay, it's what's on the, the front of your, your mind and your heart when you wake up during hunting season, right? You want to make something dead, right? You don't know, you just, you just have this burning desire. You want to go mortify the deer or whatever animal that you are going after, right? You want to make it dead, okay? And this is what God calls a Christian to do to their sin, Okay, by the transforming grace of God, he calls us to make dead our sin, to mortify it. And Owen, he says that true mortification, it consists of a few things. Okay, number one, it consists of a habitual weakening of it. Most Christians, we kind of like feed our sins a little bit, right? We just give it a little bit of time, a little bit of our thought, a little bit of this. But no, he's saying true mortification, really putting to death what is earthly in you. It means that you are habitually weakening your sin. You're starving it. You're not letting it have a little corner of your house to live in. You are starving it. You're habitually weakening it. Owen says that that mortification of sin consists of constant fighting and contending against it. This is a quote from him. He says, A wise Christian never thinks his lust dead because it is quiet, but labors to give it new wounds every day. Right? You, you have to get radical, and you have to be constantly fighting and contending against the sin in your life. Sometimes this means just throwing out a computer or TV. Sometimes it means avoiding a certain place. Sometimes it means getting accountability in your life. Sometimes it means going through counseling and talking through some of this undealt with anger. But it has to be constantly fought and contended with. Okay, Christians, we are always going to be fighting with sin. All right, we're never going to, to reach a perfect state until Christ returns. So you're always going to have a struggle and fight with sin, but many of us, we've made peace with our sin. We've surrendered to it. And so that's not what a follower of Jesus does. We constantly are fighting it and contending it, contending with it. And he gives us some really helpful ways to contend with sin, okay? Certainly, I think most of you kind of know, right? Get a, get a passage of scripture, memorize scripture, have some scripture on your heart and mind that you can go to and pray through and meditate on. But then here are Owen's, uh, I think, just some really wise, helpful uh, helps to us. Number one, he says, get a clear and abiding sense upon your mind of the guilt, danger, and evil of your sin. 
Be much in meditation of these things. Cause your heart to dwell on them. Let them begin to have a powerful influence on your soul until they make it tremble. All right, what he's saying is, hey, think about the danger and evil of you kind of living in this sin. All right, so what this means, right, if I, if I do this, right, if I'm tempted to lust or if I'm tempted to let my thought life go to someplace that it shouldn't, I have to think through, hey, if I continue to do this, how is this going to play out? It's going to hurt my intimacy with my wife, right? It's going to hurt my relationship with my kids. It's going to disqualify me from ministry. It's going to destroy my life. It's going to darken my understanding of God. It's going to not make me as sensitive and in tune with the Spirit. Like, you got to take that temptation you got to play it out how this is all going to play out. Amen. Or if I continue this coveting, if I continue this, this discontentment and this greed of things and things that are not mine, I'm going to continually become a discontented person. I'm going to not be joyful and happy in the Lord. I'm going to always be wanting more and more and more. Or maybe for you, it's anger, right? You need to think through like, hey, if I let this anger continue to brood in my life, it's going to turn into this root of bitterness. I'm going to become depressed. It's going to hurt my relationships with my friends. I'm going to be angry at other people. 40 years down the road, I'm going to be the angry, crotchety old person like spraying people who are on my grass, right? (laughs) Like that's, that's what happens, right? There, there are some sweet people who've grown in the Lord and they just become more and more tender in their old age. And then there are some that their anger broods for 40 years and you could just tell like who they are, right? Later in life. Think about what your anger is going to do and what it's going to harm in your life. Think about the danger and the evil of it. He gives another helpful help. He says, fight strongly against the first actings of your lust. Do not give allowance for it to get any traction. Sin is like water in a channel. If it once breaks out, it will have its course. Okay, so this is telling us the time to fight sin is when it first comes into our heart or our mind. Not an hour later. All right? You kill that thing when it's a cub, not when it's a full-grown lion, all right? If you're already a couple hours into it, thinking that you can manage it, like you've already lost. He then says, do not speak peace to yourself before God speaks peace to you. We sometimes too quickly try to assure ourselves or we try to assure someone else that everything's cool with them and God and we speak peace to them before God has spoken peace to them. Well, well how do you know? How do you know when is too soon? Oh, and he gives, a, he gives a helpful point. He says, if you try to assure someone of God's forgiveness before that person has truly been broken and grieved over their sin, it's, it's too soon. Right? Many people are grieved that they got caught. Many people are grieved by the consequences of sin. All right? But don't speak peace to someone. Don't, don't speak God's peace to them until they have truly broken that they have sinned against the Lord. That is what will lead to true repentance. And sometimes well-intentioned brothers and sisters and pastors, we try to come in too quickly when the Lord, you just need some time to kind of wrestle through this with the Lord. You need to be, sit under conviction for a little while until it leads to true repentance and a hate of that sin. 
And then Owen explains what mortifying sin is not. Okay, he says to mortify sin is not to utterly kill it, root it out, or destroy it. Okay, our aim is to utterly kill it, but we will always have sin we are fighting and contending until Christ returns. So don't despair if you're fighting and, and, and sin and contending with sin. That is the life of a Christian. But we don't surrender to it. We don't give up to it. He also says that mortifying sin, it's not to forsake the practice of it outwardly. Okay? Putting sin to death by the transforming grace of God is not just, more, it's not just modifying our behavior. It certainly can, cha- it can have some, some behavioral changes, but it's, it's ultimately getting at the root. It's getting at the heart desire of it. Okay? The goal is not to, uh, just not to practice sexual morality or anger, but to not even have the desire for it. He then lastly says to mortify sin is not to divert it. Many people, especially in the self-help world and the self-help authors and books, many of them have switched their idols for more culturally acceptable idols. They've exchanged one sin for another. They've actually not mortified sin. They've just diverted it. Right? Maybe they've gone from gluttony and drunkenness to now an obsession with their body image and nutrition. Or maybe they've gone from prideful self-pity to a prideful self-fulfillment. But either way, you have not mortified sin. You've only diverted it one to another. You've swapped out idols. You see, to simply divert our sin or to exchange it one for another, it's to miss the whole point of why we are putting sin to death in the first place. Look back at Colossians 3, verse 10. And, I, and I'm, I'm winding down here. Colossians 3, verse 10. And he says, And have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. You see, putting to death sin and putting on our new self is a process of renewal with the purpose of knowing Christ more. And as we know Christ more, we will experience more of his transforming grace that will empower us to put more sin to death so that we can put more of our new self on so that we'll be renewed, so that we'll know Christ more, so that we'll experience more of his transforming grace, so that we'll put more sin to death. Right? You see, it's a cycle of renewal. But this transformation is empowered and driven not by our own strength and not by our own power, but it is empowered by God. You see, you are called upon to exert a grace-driven effort in fighting some battles with sin. But listen, the war on sin has already been won by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And Jesus has sent us now the Holy Spirit. He's sent his followers the Holy Spirit in order that they might experience the transforming grace in their lives. Okay? Forgiving grace was purchased for you by Christ on the cross. And transforming grace is experienced as the Spirit applies to you what Christ accomplished for you. Now listen to these verses I will have up on the screen. Philippians 2, 12 through 13, Paul writes, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. 
This has to be empowered by God. Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Church, it is the Holy Spirit that indwells us that will produce in us the ways of our King and His kingdom, and the Spirit will empower our killing of sin at its root, at the heart level, and it is the Spirit that continually points us to Christ and His cross and the glory of the forgiveness that we experience through Him. Because, listen, I, I understand that a passage like this A sermon like this could leave some of us discouraged. It could lead some of you with feelings of guilt and shame. And I certainly don't want to speak peace to you before God speaks peace to you. Some of you might need to wrestle with some things. You might need to struggle with some of this. But listen, don't walk out of here and don't do it in isolation. Get a trusted brother or sister to come alongside you and walk with you. Rely on the Holy Spirit empowering you who dwells inside of you. Fix your eyes on Jesus who won the war for you, who is interceding for you right now, who has taken the wrath that your sins deserved so that we could be renewed to know and enjoy him more and more. Listen, church, Jesus can redeem and renew your desires. I know it might seem hopeless at times, I know it might seem hopeless that he can renew some of these habitual sins of anger and coveting and lust, but Jesus can renew them. And not only can Jesus redeem and renew your desires, but he can redeem and renew even your memories, even your past. You remember how I said that I can still remember like walking down that path. I can still remember the first time I saw those images and listen, I've taken that, that memory, I've taken that image to Jesus, I've asked him to redeem and renew it, and it didn't happen right away, but it did happen over the years. Because I used to, when I used to think of that memory, like in the past, I wouldn't have even really been able to talk about it, but now I can think about that memory. See, I, I used to think about that memory, and I used to feel guilt and shame. I used to feel conviction and condemnation. And sometimes even on my worst days, like I still desired to pick the magazine up. But the reason that I can share that memory with you now is because now when I picture that that scene, I don't feel guilt or shame anymore, but I feel gratitude for God's forgiveness. Now when I picture that scene, I don't feel conviction or condemnation, but instead I feel a growing love for Jesus who was convicted and condemned in my place. And I no longer feel a desire to pick the magazine up to satisfy my cravings for pleasure because the pleasure and satisfaction I have in Jesus is better. And so now I think of that path and I think, praise God, Jesus is better. He's better. Jesus can and does redeem us and renew us by his transforming grace so that we might put to death the sin that keeps us from fully enjoying him. And so my prayer for you is that as you go out from here, if if conviction has come upon you, that you would first speak to God about it today. And we're even going to have a few minutes of silent prayer in here for you to cry out to the Lord. 
But then I would encourage you to go out from here today and share that struggle with another brother or sister. It has to be today. You have to do it today. Like you know, be honest with yourself. If you say, oh, later this week I'll talk to someone, it won't happen. It has to be today. Trust the power of God's transforming grace at work in your life and grab a brother or sister and put to death anything that is not of the kingdom. Let's pray.